Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and in this episode, I'm joined by Michael A. Meyer to talk about Rabbi Leo Beck, about his life and his legacy as a window into 20th century German Jewish history, both before the Holocaust and also in the shadow of that tremendous tragedy. Michael A. Meyer is the Adolf S. Oaks Professor Emeritus of Jewish History at Hebrew Union College. He is a distinguished scholar in the fields of modern Jewish history, German Jewish history, and beyond. Among his many books, notable ones include The Origins of the Modern Jew, Jewish Identity and European Culture in Germany, 1749 to 1824, which was published in 1967, and also Response to Modernity, A History of the Reform Movement in Judaism, which was published in 1988. He has also edited a wide range of volumes, including Ideas of Jewish History, which appeared in 1974, and the four-volume German Jewish History in Modern Times, which was published from 1996 to 1998. Most recently, Michael has written Rabbi Leo Beck, Living a Religious Imperative in Troubled Times, which was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020, and it's the focus of our conversation today. Rabbi Leo Beck is a stirring biography of one of the most prominent rabbis of the last century. Born in 1873, Leo Beck became a spiritual leader of German Jewry in the first decades of the 20th century, as a rabbi in Silesia and later in Berlin, where he was the chief rabbi from 1912 to 1942, when he was deported to the Theresienstadt concentration camp. There, Beck played an important role in the attempt to develop Jewish cultural activities in the most adverse of circumstances. After the war, Beck settled in London, where he continued to play a leading role in the rebuilding of German-Jewish culture. He passed away in 1956, but his legacy lives on in many ways, among them the many synagogues that bear his name and also the Leo Beck Institute, the Research Institute on German Jewry, which was established in 1954 with branches in London, New York, and Jerusalem, and today also in Berlin. Rabbi Leo Beck is a biography that tells us the life story of one man, Leo Beck, and like much of Michael Meyer's excellent scholarship, it offers cogent and coherent insight into Beck's religious ideas within the context of the broader intellectual history that shaped his lifetime. But the book also does something bigger by offering us a very personal window into the world of German Jewry in the early 20th century, in the Nazi era, and also the story of its post-war legacy. And so when we talk about Leo Beck today, we're going to be both talking about the really tremendous story of his life, but also what it tells us in a much bigger way as well. 
And so with that in mind, I'm just thrilled to have Michael join me on the podcast today to discuss his book, Rabbi Leo Beck, and to think about what are the big picture lessons that we can take away from Beck's life and his legacy. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so, so glad that you're able to join me for this conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Your book on Leo Beck is just phenomenal. It's really fantastic. It really adds on to this entire set of work that you've done over so many years. And, uh, you know, I hope that in our conversation today, we'll be able to engage with the life of Leo Beck and its broader context uh, within German Jewish history, also within the history of religious reform uh, in Germany and as well as beyond. And I think that it might be useful for us to start with Leo Beck himself, right? Part of what I found so interesting and, and just so great about the book um, is that you are using the life of, of one person, uh, of course, a very important individual, to really illuminate the contours of German Jewish history in modern times as a whole. And so in what ways do you think that we can look at Leo Beck's life from the 19th century up until the 50s and better understand German Jewish history in its broadest terms when we look before the war, during the Holocaust, and also in its aftermath? How does Beck help us to understand German Jewish history in, in a large sense? Well, I think he does help us to understand, and I think one has to divide this understanding between four periods. Weimar, the Nazi period, the camp period, and then the period following the Holocaust. The Weimar years, uh, we have generally had the impression of a single culture, certainly with many different kinds of creativity, but nonetheless a certain atmosphere that characterized Weimar Germany as a whole and characterized certainly the younger generation of Jews in Weimar. It was a kind of a laissez-faire, kind of a very almost libertine society. Leo Beck lived in the Weimar period, but he was not entirely of the Weimar period. He had grown up in the Wilhelmine period before World War I, and he continued to display the characteristics of that period, what the Germans called Zurückhaltung, restraint, not letting your emotions run freely. So I think the first thing one can learn is that there's a real important difference, which is not stressed often enough, between Jews that grew up before World War I and those that grew up uh, during the Weimar period. In a way, Leo Beck was a Wilhelmine Jew living in Weimar, Germany, and I suspect there were others as well. If we go on then to the period of the Nazi oppression, I think what Beck's life teaches us is the great difficulty of achieving unity within the German Jewish community. The period before 1933 was one where there were great differences uh, that developed within German Jewry. Zionist, anti-Zionist, 
liberal, religious, orthodox, religious, poor and wealthy. What is the Nazi period tells us is that a man like Leo Beck, given a circumstance where the uh, Nazi government wants unity, can actually bring about an extraordinary and until then unparalleled, if sometimes fractious, unity within the German Jewish community. If we go to Theresien, or Theresienstadt as it was called then, I think we can learn from Beck's experience there how that so typical characteristic of 19th and 20th century German Jewry continue to be reflected there, and my reference is Bildung. In the atmosphere of the camp, as it is sometimes called, though I would call it a ghetto, there was a remarkable cultural efflorescence that took place. Leo Beck gave lectures on Plato and on Maimonides and on Mendelssohn and on both Jewish and non-Jewish thinkers, and they were hugely attended. So I think Beck's activity at Terrazin tells us a lot about how these cultural characteristics of the Jews were able to survive even under such difficult circumstances. And finally, the period after the Holocaust, Beck, like so many survivors, had great difficulty in relating to post-World War II Germany. There was a great deal of ambivalence. There were many German Jews who would never go back to Germany. Beck at the beginning was also very critical of whether German Jewish life could be restored in the post-war Federal Republic in particular. He was asked when he came to the United States, what are your feelings about the new Germany? And are you willing to forgive them? And like so many other Jews, he struggled with that question. At the beginning, he said something very sharp. He said, you know, even among cannibals, there are some who don't eat flesh. And that was the way he explained that there were certain Germans that didn't become Nazis. And he believed there really was no room for a future German Jewish community. Ultimately, however, when more and more Jews did settle there, and when the German government offered restitution, Beck's attitude to Germany changed. And here, I think, he was also characteristic of the feelings of German Jews who survived aside from himself. So I would say, whether you take any of these four periods, you can say Beck represents symbolically or historically something that was characteristic of German Jewry and which we can better understand through understanding his life. You brought up a number of really important aspects of thinking about 20th century German Jewish experiences in, in German Jewish history in the Holocaust that I think offer a number of different ways to look at some of these issues. I think one of the things that, that kind of ties together a couple of the, the points that you brought up just a moment ago is understanding German Jewish history with its internal divisions and complexities, which is to say that I think that it is unfortunately a bit too easy to 
to look at German Jewish history as a singular experience, right? Or to look at it as a singular entity, especially in light of the Holocaust, which in and of itself invites a teleological reading of history, and which is, of course, not really the best way to go about doing things in general, right? We never want to read history backwards. Um, but part of what you're indicating here is that a figure like Leo Beck helps us to understand that in all of these different periods of German Jewish history, you know, that you mentioned, that we can see that there is a, a great deal of, of tension and difference within the German Jewish communities, whether we're talking about people who grew up in, in different times and had different experiences, whether we're talking about, you mentioned unity, right? You know, the fact that Jews are looking for unity within German Jewry is indicative of the fact that there was not very much unity within German Jewish culture in many ways. Jason, with regard to that unity, I think one thing that I found very, very interesting is that when it came to choosing someone who would, in fact, be representative for the Jewish community as a whole, they picked a rabbi. One hears a great deal in the study of German Jewish history about the process of secularization. One hears about prominent secular figures. And as far as the religious figures are concerned, we don't usually associate them with activity in the general Jewish community. To be sure, Franz Rosenzweig established a Lehranstalt in Frankfurt, and Martin Buber had something to do with the adult education work. But Leo Beck is that rare combination of community leader and at the same time religious figure. It is interesting that even though there were some who objected, it was Leo Beck, the rabbi whom they could hear preaching and heard preaching in Berlin, by far the largest Jewish community, whom they judged to be a figure who would be persona grata among all of these various factions within the community. And one has to remember that the German Jewish community was political in a way that the American Jewish community is not. There were parties that vied with each other in community elections. There was the Zionist party. There was the uh, party of the uh, Central Association of uh, German Citizens of the Jewish Faith. There was the uh, traditional conservative party. There was the party of the uh, veterans of World War I, all with very different outlooks. And yet Beck was able to create a unified representation to the government at a time when that was absolutely necessary, and to do so not in a fully secular fashion. That is to say, Beck was motivated even in political matters, very much in terms of his religious conceptions. He believed that his task for the betterment of the community, for the welfare of the community, as the community became poorer and poorer, was in fact a religious task, more than a task, an obligation as a rabbi. And for that reason, I did something which previous writers on Beck haven't done. The two previous biographies on Beck, which were done 50 and 40 years ago, spoke of Leo Beck, but uh, not of Rabbi Leo Beck. And therefore, I purposely titled my, my volume Rabbi Leo Beck and not simply Leo Beck. 
And that also makes him different from Rosenzweig and Buber, neither of whom were rabbis. I'm glad that you brought up the title, actually, because this kind of leads into the next set of issues, you know, that I think are really critical for understanding Beck and for understanding the broader context, uh, which is that you chose as the subtitle of the book, Living a Religious Imperative in Troubled Times. And you've highlighted here a couple of different ways in which Beck's religiosity and his religious imperative played a part in his perspective on the broader developments of his lifetime. So when you were working on the book and when you were thinking about Rabbi Leo Beck, what does this idea mean to you, this idea of living a religious imperative in troubled times? Can you perhaps um, explain briefly what this means in the context of Beck's life and, and the broader context of what you're exploring here? It's easy, in a way, to be a religious person in quiet times, to do good deeds, because what do those deeds at that time cost you? There's very little cost involved in writing a check to a charitable cause, or even doing volunteer work in a stable and hopefully democratic society in which your life is not in danger. What makes Beck's moral response to what he understood to be the commandment of God was that he was able to do that, more than able, willing to do that, at a time when his own life was on the line. He was arrested five times. Miraculously, the Nazis did not succeed in destroying him. And for Beck, that commandment was an imperative that he could not escape, even if it meant his own life. Very famous is the story, correct story, that in 1938, Leo Beck accompanied a kinder transport, a transport of children to Great Britain, and was offered at that time various possibilities for emigration to England, as he was also offered a position in the United States, probably more than one position. But his feeling was that he has an obligation to his people, to be the shepherd of his people in Germany. Now, one of the things that I stress in the book, which I think has been insufficiently stressed, is Beck's relationship to Kiddush Hashem, to martyrdom. Leo Beck had a tradition in the family that the name Beck, in fact, was Hebrew for Ben Kedoshim. In other words, someone who was of the seed of martyrs. And Beck was ready to, if necessary, fulfill what in Judaism is, if not the highest mitzvah, one of the highest mitzvahs, and that is giving your life for someone else. In this case, he would be giving his life for the Jewish community of Germany. So what I very much admire about Beck, I think, is best described by the word integrity. There's a Hebrew expression, tohol kavaro, his inside is like his outside. Beck was somebody who genuinely practiced what he preached, regardless of the consequences. Now, Beck was very much influenced by Immanuel Kant, or more specifically by 
the neo-Kantian uh, Jew, Hermann Cohen, uh, who stressed the ethical imperative within Judaism as Kant had stressed it within Christianity. But to say Beck was simply a Kantian, I think, doesn't do full justice to what his position was. It's interesting that Kant once said very famously, two things give me wonder and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. And Beck wrote at one point, the moral law within is clearly the more significant of these two. Uh, for Beck, there was no religion without ethics. That was something that he kept throughout his whole life, even when later in his life, by the mid-twenties, he was understanding that along with Gebot, commandment, there had to also be Geheimnis, mystery. Not that he ever became a mystic, in fact, but he realized, and perhaps it became even clearer after the Holocaust, that one cannot come up with a satisfactory theodicy, that God's nature remains always mysterious. And all that we know of God is the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord your God. And at one point, Beck particularly stressed that it is a mistake to cite the biblical passage, love your neighbor, without the end of the passage, I am the Lord your God. That is to say, that commandment for Beck was not self-given, but it was given by his understanding of God. Again, this goes back to your choice to title the book Rabbi Leo Beck, is the way in which the religious approach, right, you know, his, his entire religious philosophy and, and understanding you know, was connected with his engagement with the broader world of events which were taking place around him basically throughout his lifetime, particularly in the 20th century. Absolutely. One of the things that really struck me was the way that you emphasized and that you talked about tension between the individual on the one hand, right, and nationalism and the state on the other. Uh, and of course, this is tied in with both Beck's kind of religious reading of Judaism and also his encounter with Kantianism. Could you say briefly a little bit more about the relationship really between these three aspects, Beck's religious outlook, his encounter with neo-Kantianism, and this broader philosophical understanding, right? His notion that the individual is so important in contrast with the nation and with the state, you know, which, which really is a theme that comes out throughout all periods of modern German history, you know, especially in the shadow of fascism. Beck shared the vast majority of Jews' German patriotism. In the very beginning of World War I, he volunteered to be an army chaplain. He believed that the German cause was just, as did Martin Buber and as did almost everyone else. However, Beck was not a chauvinist, and he was not someone who believed that Germans were somehow superior to French or the like. He believed that out of the war might come a new Germany, which was really an old Germany, not the imperialistic Germany of Bismarck, but rather the enlightened Germany 
of the 18th century of figures like uh, Schiller and Lessing and the like. With regard to the state, his argument really was in particular with Christianity. Some of Beck's best-known work deals with his criticism of Christianity as represented in particular by Paul and by Luther. Beck realized long before the Nazi state that there was great danger when religion became the handmaid of the state. And he attributed that to the old Christian doctrine of render Caesar unto Caesars, but he saw it in a particularly troublesome form in Martin Luther, in the notion that one is saved by faith alone, and that the purpose of religion was to save the soul and not to be concerned with matters of social justice, because that really belonged to the domain of the state. This, for Beck, was what he called romantic religion, as opposed to classic religion. He found himself somewhat closer to Calvinism than he did to Lutheranism, in that Calvinism, like Judaism, stresses works uh, in the world, works for the betterment of society. For Beck, a religion that is directed inward alone and not outward is not a religion in the Jewish or in the prophetic sense. For Beck, the biblical prophets were the fundamental authors of what Judaism became, not only in the biblical period, but also in later periods, or at least strove to be. It is interesting that uh, I discovered that Leo Beck, already at the time of the latest, in the early 50s, was using the term uh, tikkun olam very frequently. This is attested to by someone who knew him, namely the fixing or the repairing of the world. Beck's religion not only was not focused inward, but rather outward, and that, by the way, separates him from Franz Rosenzweig, who understood the task of being in the world to be Christianity and Judaism being focused upon itself as a people. Leo Beck believed that the task of Jews was a task in the world. He was, in a sense, a messianist. Not that he believed that the, that the Messiah would come today or tomorrow, but he believed that the difference between the social and political and moral situation today and what it should be according to prophetic vision was what Judaism was all about, trying to bring the real closer to the ideal. And therefore, religion must not succumb to reasons of state. It must not succumb to what a ruling majority believes is best but must focus upon the individual and the moral conscience of the individual. And he believed that in this regard, Judaism had something to teach not only Jews, but to teach human beings in general. Beck stressed the idea of the mitmensch, 
of the fellow human being, the individual, as the fundamental building block of society, not the state, certainly not the autocratic state, whether it was the Bolshevik state, which Beck despised, or whether it was obviously also the Nazi state. Part of what you're getting us to here is the broader relationship between religion and the state and the role of religion in the public sphere. To what extent you know, do we see Beck's engagement with these issues in his lifetime you know, relating to these developments? You mentioned his uh, opinion about the rise of Soviet Russia. You know, obviously, you know, with regards to, to Nazism, it's very clear what's going on there you know, in terms of the rejection of Nazi anti-Semitism and Nazism as a whole. But how is Beck, as you said, as somebody who understands the role of Judaism, the role of religion as being something that is outward facing as opposed to strictly inward facing? In what ways did Beck, being a leader in the largest and most significant German Jewish community, play a part in the debates about these issues in his lifetime? It's interesting. I asked myself the whole time that I was writing the book, where does Beck fit in politically? This is not an easy question because in his mannerisms, Beck was very conservative. During the 20s, he had uh, come into close contact with certain members of the nobility. He had a lot of respect for their uh, conservatism but I think conservatism largely in matters of, shall I say, demeanor. Beck himself always wore a three-piece piece suit. He was a very formal individual. So he appreciated some aspects of conservatism. What I found interesting, and I think I was the first to, in fact, discover it, is that Beck had a close relationship to socialism, not Marxist socialism, but religious socialism. I found that he would lecture to socialist groups in Berlin and uh, had very high regard for them. He also, when he visited Palestine, which he did for the first time in 1935, took great pleasure in visiting the kibbutzim, the collective settlements, some of which had been settled. Jewish emigrants from Germany. So Beck uh, was somebody who recognized the danger of authoritarianism on the one hand and demagogy on the other. If I were to classify him, I would say he was a, uh, a social democrat, what we would they call a social democrat. He was not a revolutionary, but he was someone who believed very strongly in the importance of pushing religious progress. He also was very much concerned with tzedakah, with Jewish charity. When he was the uh, head of the Jewish representation to the Nazi Reich, he was engaged ever more desperately to, uh, to raise funds for the Jewish community as it became poorer and poorer, and to raise funds for those Jews who were fortunate enough to get a visa to the United States or to Palestine, but needed funds to be able to make that transition. So he was very much engaged 
had appreciation for the notion of equality, as did Martin Buber, who was also attached to the kibbutzim movement in Israel, but had a manner which was, again, to come back to what I said at the very beginning, not the kind of a loose say-it-all manner of Weimar, but rather a certain measure of restraint. So that was a kind of a complexity, if you will, uh, within Leo Beck. And yet the fact that he maintained a certain amount of social distance perhaps also explains why people could respect him the way that they did. He was not, you know, simply a party politician. He was not a rabbi who tried to use gimmicks in his sermons so that more people would listen to him, as other younger rabbis in his time did. He was somebody whom one had respect and confidence in. I want to turn chronologically, specifically to the period of the Nazi regime and of the Holocaust. In the life of Leo Beck, as in German Jewish history at large, you know, the 12-year period from 33 to 45 you know, looms over everything. You know, as I mentioned, we want to avoid a teleological reading of German Jewish history. It's always there, standing over what we think about. You actually, in the book, you dedicate probably the largest portion of the book to Beck's you know, experiences and activities under the Nazi regime. You mentioned his involvement in the various German-Jewish representative groups under the Nazis, you know, later on his activities in Terezin in the Theresienstadt ghetto, you know, or concentration camp, you know, so there's a lot to say there just in general about what is happening there. What I was hoping that we can maybe discuss briefly is what is it about Beck's activities, his experiences, you know, what he's doing, you know, in this time, how does it illuminate the period of the Nazi regime and the Holocaust in a new way that when we look at other aspects of what's taking place in this time period that we don't see as much. What is it about Beck that helps us to understand it in a clearer clear way? Let me begin by uh, mentioning something that happened before the Nazi period. In 1925, Leo Beck gave a lecture in the city of Königsberg. Now, you have to know that in that period, the German Jews felt very much at home in Germany. And he said during this lecture, who knows whether one day we may no longer feel at home here in Germany and will need to emigrate. And he gave a historical example of 1492, when the Jews of Spain, who had spent centuries feeling very much at home, first in Muslim Spain especially, but also to a great extent in Christian Spain, suddenly found themselves expelled from the country. So Beck was not naive. And yet, when we come to the Nazi period itself, Beck is in some ways very typical of other German Jews in that it is very hard for him to give up the idea that Germany is Heimat, the German term much written about recently, which really means home. That's sort of the best English translation of it. First years of his being head of the Reichsvertretung, the uh, general body of representation of Jews to the government, uh, Beck is still talking about trying to survive within the Nazi country, the Nazified Germany. And it is interesting to see how gradually that 
shifts in his writings and his speeches as the situation becomes worse and worse. During that time, there were groups of Jews in Germany who recognized immediately that there had been a profound change, and those were the Zionists who could appreciate the extreme nationalism of Nazism because they were, after all, nationalists themselves and appreciated how strongly that could influence one's actions and beliefs. On the other extreme was the Reform Congregation in Berlin. Most German Jews were liberal, which is somewhere between conservative and reform in the United States today. But this Reform Congregation was really highly assimilationist. And one can read the heart-wrenching letters to the editor in their publication, how how is it possible? I've grown up my whole life within Germany. I love Germany. I love the landscape. I, I love the language, the literature, the culture. How is it possible to shift my identity from something that was so peripheral before, namely my Jewish identity, and recognize the fact that I have been branded by the Nazis as no longer properly a German? no longer a citizen, but only a denizen of the Nazi state. So I think in a way, uh, Beck, who uh, had, as I mentioned earlier, been a Prussian, been a chaplain in the First World War, came more and more to the realization, I would say pretty much middle of the road, that the situation was one in which our concern now had to be getting Jews out of Germany just as quickly as possible. I think this is a, is a huge issue, right, which is the question of German Jews' attachment to Germany and the question of why it took such a long time for so many German Jews to fully understand what was happening in the Nazi regime. You gave the example before you talked about Leo Beck's 1925 sermon about the expulsion of Jews from Spain. and. It's interesting because that example in and of itself is a statement of the sense that German Jews were at home in Germany, right? The German Jews, as you know, there's been so much research on this issue, the, the affinity between German Jews and the Spanish Jews, the sense that, that, yes, we may have to leave in the future might be shocking, but the comparison between German Jewry and Spanish Jewry is in and of itself a statement that Jews in Germany are recreating the quote-unquote convivencia of the golden age of Jews in Spain. You know, so that in and of itself is a statement of that we are living in this time of, you know, the the confluence of Deutschtum and Judentum, to borrow the phrase, you know, Germanness and Jewishness of Hermann Cohen himself, who, as you mentioned, was so influential on Leo Beck. You know, so part of what is interesting here is that is that even in this 1925 sermon, he's saying, well, maybe in the future, who knows what will come, but it's still coming from this sense that Jews in Germany are at home right? What is happening in the transformation of Beck's understanding alongside such a large portion of the German Jews, who it takes them, very unfortunately, a long time to really comprehend the Nazi threat and to Jewish life at large? Well, one has to remember that what, and here I would refer to what you called earlier the teleological view, one has to keep in mind that even in the mid-30s, no one could imagine what would happen 
seven or eight years later. And I think it is true that in the Weimar period, the Jews had achieved a level of integration over generations. So it wasn't just that they felt a part of German culture. Their parents already felt a part of German culture. They had participated in hikes around the country in their youth. They had gone to, in some cases, elite institutions of learning. And one has to remember also that uh, up until the Nazi period, Germany was a center of culture for the world. It was a center of uh, scientific innovation. It had a, a cultural heritage that was extraordinary. There was much to love about Germany in the 1920s. Uh, Peter Gay, uh, the historian, has stressed just how at home, in fact, German jury was in the Weimar period. And then in 1933, it shifted, but few, aside from the Zionists, recognized that this was going to be a shift which represented only the first stage of a process that would bring ever more suffering upon them. And they kept saying to themselves, okay, they've done this. Maybe the emancipation is reversed for a time, but the German people will not continue to believe in this Austrian corporal. That's so un-German, that person. How could they put their trust in him? But we have learned from history of many countries that the mass is easily bamboozled. It was hard for the German Jews who were very much middle class and associated principally with the educated people whom they met in universities and cultured circles who were less likely to become Nazis and others, that outside of this little island of Berlin, there was anti-Semitic sentiment that they could, uh, could not imagine. There was a strong attachment that enabled them to keep their eyes shut to what was occurring until they could no longer keep their eyes shut. Indication or the moment when that happened, of course, was with the pogrom of November 9, 1938, the organized violence that destroyed synagogues, Jewish lives, Jewish shops, Jewish homes, and made it clear that, in fact, there was no return to what had been the case of the situation of German Jewry before 1933. So it was a slow process of awakening, and I think Beck also underwent that process. So when we look at German Jewish cultural, religious, political leaders, people including Beck, but also so many others, how do we see this transforming? You know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, following 1938 and into the years of the Holocaust, when you look at a figure like Beck, how does that help us to understand the leadership of German Jewry in this really dark time? The fact that they chose someone like Leo Beck, I think, speaks well for the German community. Not, not everyone accepted him. There was the question of whether the Berlin Jewish community, led by its chairperson, Heinrich Stahl, should have the right to make decisions for German Jewry as a whole. And he did, on a number of occasions, 
seek to undermine Beck's leadership, and yet his leadership held. And groups that were originally on the outside of the Reichsvertretung came into the inside. And Beck was able to balance the varying interests of these different groups. He himself had started out as a non-Zionist, but became increasingly Zionist in the German-Jewish tradition of being very much of a dove, but a Zionist nonetheless. He was a member of the Zentralverein, the Jewish Defense Organization, so he was one of theirs. He had been in World War I, so he had an association with the veterans of World War I. He was a liberal Jew, so certainly he was backed by the liberals. Uh, the fact that he was not a party person, as I stressed before, the fact that he could transcend the divisions that existed within German Jewry made him an ideal uh, leader during these times. He also had the good fortune to have working with him a man of considerable diplomatic and practical experience named Otto Hirsch, who was ultimately murdered by the Nazis, who was able to carry on the day-to-day -day affairs so that Beck could devote himself to what was probably his most important task and for which he is, is most admired, and that is his, his attempts, his struggles to uphold morale within the German Jewish community in such, if you will, troubled times that the community would see, be able to see itself, as he put it, not as a community of fate, a community that lived under the sword, as it were, under the sword of Damocles, but a community of will. Because even if the German Jews couldn't change their external situation, they could have control over their internal situation. They could see themselves not as the Nazis saw them as a despicable race, but they could see themselves as children of God. And that was very important in his very famous prayer for Yom Kippur in 1935, which the Nazis confiscated. Beck wrote, a lie going on beneath us, but we look upward. We owe our allegiance to God. We stand before God on this day of atonement, before God and not before the state. It is God who is our judge. It is not Nazi propaganda. As you're discussing Beck's role in trying to have a sense of agency might be the right sense, right? Internal agency within the German Jewish community, whether we're talking in the 1930s or into the 1940s as well, I think you know, there's something to be said here about the cultural activity within Theresienstadt, the attempt to continue Jewish cultural activity, even within the camp itself. Is there a connection between Beck's sense of the need for morale that you mentioned you know, just a moment ago and his involvement in the cultural activities and the question of what does it mean to maintain morale for Jews who are living in a concentration camp, right? We, you know, we might call it a ghetto, but it's essentially a concentration camp. But it's this question of what does it mean to maintain morale in that kind of situation? You know, to what extent do you tell people what's going to come next if you know about what is happening you know, in the camps further east with deportation and so on and so forth, what deportation to the east really means? These are huge questions within the context of 
the Theresienstadt of Terezin. And what is the connection there between Beck's activities in the 30s and then what continues on once he's in Theresienstadt? First of all, I would stress the word transcendence. What Beck enabled those who came to the lectures that he gave to do was to transcend their environment, to uh, live for an hour as they listened to the lecture or as they discussed with Beck in his place where he was living in Theresienstadt, they could, for a moment, see themselves as human beings, transcend their hunger, transcend their cold, transcend the disease which was rampant in the Theresienstadt ghetto. He enabled that. Now, you also raise a question which is one of the very difficult questions with regard to Leo Beck, and that is, why did he not reveal knowledge that he had with regard to what happened to the transports that regularly left Theresienstadt or the East. And here, one, at least for me, I, I invoke rabbinic expression, don't judge as someone else unless you're actually in his position. Beck, I am sure, struggled with whether or not he should reveal his own knowledge that he did obtain in Terezin as to what happened in the East. He ultimately decided not to reveal it, and the reason was the following. He was very much afraid that if he were to reveal knowledge of what was happening in the East, there would be massive suicide. And indeed, suicide had been a characteristic among German Jews already in Nazi Germany and occurred frequently also in Theresienstadt. He further judged there was a possibility that individuals who worshipped the East might somehow survive. And the fact is that a number of them did and mentioned that afterwards they believed that Beck made the right decision. Others thought that Beck should have revealed it and come what may. It is a, uh, an issue that uh, one can make strong arguments on each side. And I'm sure that after the war, Beck kept asking himself, uh, did I make the right decision or did I not? And one has to appreciate the difficult situation in which he was at that time and how hard it must have been to make the decision one way or the other. Yeah. When we look at this time period, there are so many difficult decisions that people had to make. And Beck provides, I think, one important example of to think about what it might have been like to live through that and the kinds of challenges that people faced in this time. Absolutely. Yes. Another thing I might mention with regard to Terezin is that Beck did not exercise any influence that he might have had in determining that a particular individual might be saved from the transport eastward when another had to be put in that person's place. Beck refused to play favoritism even when it was someone he knew or even a relative. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned a number, I think, of really important aspects about Leo Beck, both before the rise of Nazism, during the Nazi period, 
you know, in the camp where we see Beck becoming a widely respected leader, a unifying factor within German Jewry as a whole, among Jews within the Theresienstadt and, and so on and so forth. You know, you've mentioned once or twice the idea that he was non-political, right? That he, you know, to use the German word, he's unparteilich, right? He's not above the fray of, of politics. He doesn't use his influence to help others and so on and so forth. And this leads into the way in which when you get to the end of the war, right? And, and in the aftermath of the war, Beck becomes his icon in a way. Among German Jewish survivors, you know, and also among within Jewish communities, you know, around the world. And you actually end the book with a discussion of the way in which Beck becomes this kind of icon or even a celebrity in the aftermath of the war. I've focused a lot and thought a lot about the Leo Beck Institute, for instance, uh, which was established in the mid fifties in, uh, in Jerusalem, in New York, and in London, uh, and where the German Jewish survivors are, are choosing Beck as this figure who they want to name this institute, which is dedicated to the legacy, the cultural and historical legacy of German Jewry. So they want to dedicate this institute essentially to him. So what is happening here in terms of Beck's position, in terms of German Jews following the Holocaust who are trying to make sense of the legacy of this history in the aftermath of the Holocaust, as well as Jewish communities around the world who are looking to Beck as a representative of, of German Jewry, where you see so many synagogues are named after Leo Beck. You know, we could go through the list of them, but, but there's a whole bunch of them. So what is the place of Leo Beck in the rebuilding of Jewish culture after the Holocaust, and then his afterlife, as you might say, as we look to the legacy of Leo Beck after his passing as well? I think the fact that he survived Theresienstadt really almost miraculously. Someone else was chosen to be murdered in his place by mistake. I think that that had something to do with it. But the fact that he stayed in Germany during the Nazi period in order to shepherd his flock, as it was put, I think gave him this stature which was um, without parallel. He represented the best in German Jewry. I mean, consider what he embodied. He was a scholar. He uh, wrote important scholarly work on the Pharisees, for example, even on two books of the Kabbalah. That tradition of Jewish scholarship was embodied in Beck. He was a rabbi of liberal Judaism in Germany and in the United States. Liberal Judaism, called Reform Judaism or Conservative Judaism, was the dominant form of Judaism. So he was a religious representative of a, shall we say, enlightened or, if you like, modernized form of Judaism at the same time. He had become an active uh, Zionist by the time of the end of the war so that he could relate to what was going on in Palestine, the establishment of the Jewish state, was in short someone who one could look up to, one could appreciate, and the tendency was, uh, except among very few, to really put him on a pedestal. The American writer, Jewish writer Cynthia Ozick, had very high respect for Leo Beck because she admired his ethically-based Judaism as opposed to the inner Judaism of the soul, shall we say, that Beck had castigated as romantic. 
uh, religion. So there was this uh, embodiment of all of these uh, within Beck that I think made him a significant uh, a symbol. But of course, he was a, a complex personality. Uh, I wish more of his letters had survived so we would know more about his inner thoughts. But he was a very private person. And perhaps that also has something to do with his stature. He had a certain aura about him, shall we say. There are no scandals about Leo Beck, no matter how hard you look through the literature. He was never involved in any kind of a scandal. So he was a moral exemplar in his personal life. And I think that, too, was part of it. Uh, why he was admired as much as he was, and why institutions should want to use his name as representative of the best, both in terms of modern culture, but more importantly, in terms of a modernized Judaism that really made a difference in terms of the social environment and the betterment of that environment. I mean, there's a lot more that we could say about Beck's legacy. We don't have a ton of time left, so I do want to move forward a little bit. You know, I, I want to expand the horizon of our conversation and try to put your work on Leo Beck in the context of your broader research and writing on a number of different issues. You know, where this is itself, it's a wonderful book and it's a very important subject, but it also intersects in very important ways with the broader work that you've done over the past few decades. You know, a lot of your work, for instance, is focused on the history of Reform Judaism, on religious reform from the 19th century up until the present. In what ways does your work on Leo Beck interact with and inform the broader history of Jewish religious reform within which he was a part of this history and which impacted and influenced his, his own outlook? Yeah, I think here Leo Beck plays an important role. The reform movement in Germany was a movement of adaptation intellectually and uh, also aesthetically to the environment. The liturgy was changed in order that there not be statements made that the individuals making them didn't fully believe, whether it be uh, the coming of a, uh, a messiah in some miraculous form, or whether it be a statement that overly stressed the chosenness of the people of Israel. These changes were made as the reform movement developed and became more and more Germanized, more and more conforming to the uh, mores of their time. Beck, who was among his other positions, also president of the World Union for Progressive Judaism, spoke at the conferences of this World Union on a number of occasions. And what he stressed was that the Jews should be not like everyone else, but that they should be the great nonconformists of history, that Jews should be different and stress their difference from the rest of the religious community, rather than stressing, oh, we Jews are just a variation of a Judeo-Christian tradition. And with regard to prayer, for Beck, the important thing, as he said in one of these speeches, was not 
whether you changed this or that expression in the prayer book. It was whether you prayed or didn't pray. In other words, the real problem was secularization. The real problem was assimilation. He was trying to make liberal Judaism return to its roots when it had distanced itself too far from those roots, according to Leo Beck. Judaism, he believed, had a role to play in the world, and Jews needed to be proud of their entire tradition. He stressed again and again, despite his being a devoted liberal Jew, that the important word is not liberal or reform or orthodox, the adjective, but the noun Judaism. In other words, he stressed what we call in Hebrew, Klal Yisrael, or the totality of the Jewish community. So I would say that insofar as the reform movement in recent years has continued to become more traditional in character, uh, and more concerned with matters of social justice, that Leo Beck definitely was very much involved in this, uh, I would say, change of direction uh, within liberal reform conservative Judaism. Yeah. I mean, this kind of speaks back to this question of Beck's legacy, where I think people are looking to Beck to some extent as perhaps an example. Right. Another thing that I, I was just thinking about as I was looking at your book was the choice of biography as a genre, right? You know, the, the focus on Beck as an individual, as I indicated towards the beginning of our conversation, I think that part of what is interesting about this book and about the life of Leo Beck is, is not just that we learn about one prominent individual, right, who has really an incredible life story, but that it tells us something bigger about modern Jewish history, about German Jewish history, the history of the Holocaust, and so on and so forth. I think is really interesting is that you, in, in your work, you know, I mentioned your work on Reform Judaism, but broadly speaking, you've examined German Jewish history, both on the largest scale, and in here I'm thinking about, for instance, the multi-volume history of the German Jews that you edited in the 90s, and now you're looking at the German Jewish experience through the lens of one particular individual, in this case, Leo Beck. What I would like us to maybe think about here a little bit is what is it that we learn differently from looking at German Jewish history from 30,000 feet, as it were, as opposed to looking at it from the perspective of the life experience of one individual, in this case, Leo Beck? Let me answer you this way, Jason. From the beginning of my career as a historian, a long time ago, I was interested in people. I think that the history that focuses on individuals is attractive interesting and significant in a way that a generalizing, jargonizing uh, historical presentation fails at doing. I think we are, in our historiography of the present, more and more realizing that if history is going to be not just for a few specialists, but is going to be a real force in the larger reading community, then the way to get people involved is by dealing with either history of an individual, a biography, or a biography, or a multiple biography, a biography of more than one individual, 
And when I did my first book on the origins of the modern Jew, I in fact focused upon individuals, Moses Mendelssohn, David Friedlander, Rachel von Hagen, Leopold Sunz, and so on. And I think it's particularly interesting that just in the last couple of years, the Jewish historian at Bar-Ilan University, Shmuel Feiner, has published a large two-volume history of Jews in the 18th century called Eit Hadashah, literally modern age, which exists so far only in Hebrew. In that book, the history of the Jews, and not just in Germany, but all over the world, including the United States or America at that time, and uh, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, all of that is told through biographies, starting with Glickel of Hamel, Jacob Emden, ultimately Moses Mendelssohn, uh, Solomon Maimon, simply by interweaving the histories of individuals, you tell the history of the period in a way that the average reader can find attractive. It is interesting that Beck himself believed in the importance of this kind of historical study which seeks to understand individuals. He was a student of uh, Wilhelm Dilthey at the University of Berlin. And Dilthey stressed the importance of Verstehen, of understanding, understanding human emotions. He also talked about the importance of empathy in historical writings. In other words, this is a humanizing of history. History becomes something which is not simply an abstract science, but it becomes a narrative that enhances the understanding of human beings generally through the portraits of particular individuals. And when you put them together, as Feiler has done, you in fact have a history which is very broad in its scope, even if, let's say, matters like demography and so on perhaps get short shrift. So I think we are in a period today where biography, which had been neglected for a time in historical studies, is coming back to the center of interest among historians and among readers of history. What you're getting at here is a, is a big picture issue that, that I've been thinking about you know, on this podcast for a long time, basically since I began the project now a couple of years back, which is what does it mean for history to matter? What does it mean for our understanding of the past to inform us and to contribute to our understanding of all sorts of issues, you know, intellectual issues, cultural issues, you know, all sorts of different ways. And I think part of what you're saying here is that looking at individuals, whether it's Leo Beck or, or really anybody else, helps to focus us on what it is that matters about history, which is that history is about people. I would say this stands very much in opposition to the positivistic view of historiography, where you're just interested in the, in the facts and uh, discovery, if you will. I think saying history matters, and I, I really like your title there because it's a wonderful double entendre, means that really history can change people's uh, 
way of living can change their not just their 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 culture by broadening their culture and broadening their horizons but can actually change behavior i think we learn from history not that history doesn't of course doesn't repeat itself but there is much in the past as i'm sure you would agree which at least gives a sense of direction for the future and uh, by learning how various individuals some admirable some not admirable some unconscionable we nonetheless learn about uh, human nature and in that way we learn about ourselves and therefore history matters matters deeply a nation without an attention to history is a nation that will falter a nation whose culture will will die away leo beck in his later writings in particular stressed how jewish history is a history of a spirit that renews itself unlike other cultures that rise and fall the jewish people undergoes renaissances revivals jewish life diminishes in one place uh, it comes to life in another and that happens of course through the jews themselves through the jewish people in his last work this people israel Beck stressed the history of the jews and that history of course he understood as a history of human beings human beings striving to either fulfill god's commandments uh, or resisting them in fact beck saw history not just of the jews but human history in general as on the spiritual level positive or negative responses to god's command his approach to history was a religious approach to history he believed that jewish historical study must come from within from the kind of empathy and understanding that requires going on to understanding how human beings behave in the case of jewish history how jewish human beings have acted uh, within their time and place yeah i mean i i think that you've struck a chord here in terms of thinking about the ways in which history matters because it provides a context and an understanding for people to understand how they got to where they are and about what might happen in the future as well so when we look at german jewish history as a whole or the history of leo beck in particular when you think about this history why do we think that it matters what are some of the lessons or the ideas that we might take away from looking at this history as i mentioned of german jewry as a whole or leo beck in particular that informs sort of your thinking about why this whole set of issues is is so important you know not just because we want to know about what happened in the past but because it provides some broader meaning a broader context a broader understanding of our world yes i i do believe that it does provide that broader understanding uh, of our world and it can change not only thinking but also change behavior uh, perhaps that's the most important thing we see new paths open before us we see that other paths lead to a cliff over which we can easily fall history simply gives us a richer sense of life i would say it broadens our possibilities for living and it sets certain cautions before us as well 
not, you know, we will undergo the experience precisely of some historical character. But if we take all of these characters together, we learn something about what could lie before us. And therefore, perhaps we can choose the direction in which we go more wisely. German Jewish history is on the one hand a warning, but it is also, I would say, a model. It is a warning uh, against taking anti-Semitism not seriously enough, and it is a, a challenge to create the kind of society that is as intellectually and artistically productive and as concerned for the poor among them as German Jewry was, so that uh, the German Jews had their faults. Perhaps they were naive to a certain extent, but they also accomplished a very important cultural, artistic, and religious scholarly objectives. I just want to thank you so much. Thank you. This It's just been wonderful to have a chance to chat with you. It's my pleasure, Jason, and good luck with your future podcasts as well. Thanks. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.